0: Hi, my name is Jim Lewis, and my name is Chris Painter. Welcome to Inside Cyber Diplomacy.
1: Between the two of us, I think we know almost everyone involved in cyber diplomacy, and the idea behind this is really to have frank conversations with those leaders in this area and bring that to the rest of the world, this new area of diplomacy, and talk to these leaders about what's going on. Our plan is that you'll hear things on this podcast that you're not going to hear anywhere else. Frank, not scripted, direct conversations. Hope you like it. I know we will. So please listen in.
0: Uh, welcome to Inside Cyber Diplomacy. Our guest today is Johanna Weaver, who is Australia's leading cyber negotiator and uh, one of the most skillful diplomats on the UNC. So we're gonna talk to her about what she's been up to, what's going on in Australia, what's going on with the OEWG and the GGE. Johanna, do you wanna kick things off?
2: Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me, uh, Jim and Chris, it's a real honor to be here. I love the idea behind this podcast and I'm looking forward to the conversation that we have.
0: Why don't we start, what are you up to now? You're in New York, right? How long have you
2: been in New York? I have been in New York uh, since just before the open-ended working group. So now for a couple of months, um, we made the decision that I would uh, temporarily relocate to New York. Obviously, in, in normal times, we would travel backwards and forwards, but we made the call that... Um, well, obviously, traveling backwards and forwards is not possible at the moment. So I have uh, I've been here. Uh, we initially were very much focused on the open-ended working group and concluding the open-ended working group. And now um, with that successfully behind us, we're now very focused on the conclusion of the GGE and all the group of governmental experts, which will
1: finish up this month. Certainly, you picked a great time to be in New York when nothing's open. Uh, <laughs> but there's certainly a lot of activities you said around the UN and, and the, the big thing obviously that we'll start with is the open-ended working group that concluded and concluded to many people's surprise successfully <laughs> so so I guess you know first kind of wanted to get your impressions on that conclusion and then really try to a little get maybe a little bit behind the scenes and you know, how that came about how, how we got to where we were and how important you think that is
2: Sure. So I think the open-ended working group agreement and that report, I really encourage everyone to have a have a close look at it. Um, there have been many comments about it in terms of what it brings and what its value is and, and obviously affirming the framework of responsible state behaviour, international law, norms, CBMs, capacity building is absolutely foundational and a and a significant victory. But there's also a lot of other good things in there in terms of recognition of health infrastructure, elections, uh, technical infrastructure of the internet, the survey of national implementation, and in your close to your heart, Chris, the guidance around capacity building and the principles to guide impartial capacity building work. So it really is a very rich report um, that offers, I think, a really good springboard for a lot of work uh, that is to come.
0: Some people say that you were instrumental in getting the OEWG agreement. I'm not flattering you because I've told you at least two people have told me that on either side of the fence. <laughs> but they said one of your strengths was that you were really good at interfacing with the developing countries, with the countries who were new to the cyber process. That was one of the things I noticed at the OEWG you had many, many more countries who weren't usually parts of GGEs what was your take on that what what did you think they were looking for what was what was your magic in working with them
1: you know australia obviously is usually associated with the five eyes and, and that, that position on these issues but you know it seemed at least observing it like jim that australia was trying to play a little bit of the the broker in this too so be interested in that perspective
2: well first of all um thank you for that we made a decision early on as australia that we wanted to Recognize that the open ended working group was different to the GGE. And, and many people talk about, you know, there being more voices in the open ended working group and different perspectives being brought. The GGEs have always had those different perspectives because the GGEs have always been based on equal geographical distribution, right? What changed in the open ended working group was that those voices were there consistently, um, that everyone was in the room at the same time. And whilst you still had you know, the great powers and um, who had who bring very specific objectives, the negotiating power and dynamic changed completely um, by moving to that broader open-ended working group format. So we engaged very actively right from, from the start. And, and I have to say it was a real privilege to have the resourcing and backing from the Australian government that we could do this properly. You know, I I had opportunity to travel to meet counterparts this was when we could still travel to meet them right at the start of this process and and really work to build those relationships in terms of what the magic is that there is no magic it's simply listening um, to what the others are saying and i think you know we we know and we can rehearse and recite our own positions real diplomacy is about is being able to listen to what the others say and find those points of common ground. And I think anyone who, you know, perception of diplomats as being, you know, champagne sipping, um, frere rocher eating folks, I, I really challenge people who to sit across the table from someone who has fundamentally different values, a fundamentally different worldview to you, Um, but to still be able to find those areas of commonality and to be able to identify where you have common interests. And so that was uh, the objective that we had. And it was also made easy by the fact that there was a very high level of engagement. We didn't go looking for people to engage with. The countries wanted to engage with us. And so, you know, that is also testament to um, the priority that all governments are affording to this issue.
0: One thing I remember from one of the sessions that was sort of a surprise was uh, you and the Iranian got into it a little bit. And at the end, you were on really good terms. He actually <laughs> shook your hand. I mean, it was like, what, what, what happened there? I mean, the ability to work with the Iranians was impressive because they clearly could have been one of the sticky points. So- yeah,
2: look, I, I really enjoyed my interactions with the Iranians. I remember the incident you're talking about there. And actually, that built and provided the foundation for quite a long relationship throughout the whole uh, open-ended working group process. And it really was, again, I think that was the, the very first session. We were in New York. The Iranians made a statement. I made a statement afterwards in which I disagreed with most of what they said. But then afterwards went and had a conversation with them to better, because I I didn't quite understand what they had said. Uh, The next morning when I took the floor, I actually associated myself with a statement that had been made by the Iranians. I, I, I can't remember what the actual statement was, unfortunately. But I think that took a lot of people by surprise because the idea that Australia was associating with a statement that had been made by Iran. But... There is, and that goes to the point of finding the common ground. I didn't associate with the entirety of what Iran had said, but there was and still is points that Iran make um, that Australia very much agrees with. And I think being able to point that out, to build those bridges, not to be making concessions and not to be um, giving ground on, on issues where we do disagree and that are important, but those types of acknowledgements go a long way in showing that you actually are listening to what the others are saying. Um, And in large part, being able to demonstrate that makes a big difference.
1: What do you think the Iranians wanted out of this?
2: I, I don't want to put words in the mouth of the Iranians. I did have many bilaterals with the Iranians, both in person and virtually. What was clear and where I was able to build a very genuine relationship with them is that they are concerned about the use of ICTs maliciously against them and they want to have frameworks and rules in place to prevent that, and frankly to hold others accountable when they use them against them. Um, That is actually something that Australia also shares that concern. Now we may have differing views about how we go about that, but the desire to address that was a common desire. The Iranians um, and, you know, their statements are online. They were very strong on things like the principle of non-intervention, etc. cetera, no unilateral measures, et cetera. These are, you know, the principle of non-intervention as it stands in international law is something that Australia, of course, 100% supports. I can get behind that. Unilateral measures, well, that's a little bit more complicated. Unilateral measures um, in Australia's view are in accordance with the UN Charter, um, therefore that's not something that we were able to share agreement on. These are all things that we discussed on the floor publicly and I think they're probably examples of where there is commonality and where there isn't. But that fundamental desire to address this issue is there for Iran, but I would say it's also there for every country that was engaging in these processes. The reason we had such high level of engagement was because generally, governments the world over, are looking at the increase in this type of malicious activity and are genuinely concerned about how we address it. Um, and that concern, I think, is a concern that we all
1: have in common. It, you know, it sort of struck me there wasn't much progress, though, on the accountability part. You know, that, that is a concern I know Australia has, the US has, sounds like Iran has too. In spite of the norms, in spite of international law, you still have a lot of bad actors. But the idea of how accountability is done didn't seem to get very far. What what do you chalk that up to?
2: Oh Well, look, I think accountability in the international space is always going to be difficult, whether you're talking about cyber or any other means. So that's my first starting point. The second is we didn't really have a conversation about accountability because the conversation through the open-ended working group was much more about the framework. I think accountability comes after uh, that if you're talking about it from, from a global level. But I think just because you have the increase in the behaviour and the continued increase in the behaviour Uh, doesn't invalidate the value of the process or the value of the norms and the rules, et cetera. You have to agree them in order to then be able to hold people accountable to them. So that is a fundamental building block, which we now have solidly, you know inconvertibly in place that it is that it is there and able to move forward and I think there was conversation about like attribution and how we support attribution which is linked to the idea of consequences Um, but accountability itself was not really was not part of these discussions but will and must be part of discussions going forward if we are to to uh, maintain credibility
1: you know switching to another interlocutor. There's a lot of thought that you know when Russia sponsored this resolution, this whole thing would blow up. And and there were some times, and I and Jim was in the room and I was in the room sometimes where there were some interesting interventions by Ambassador Krutsky on some of these issues, which would lead you to believe it's going to be difficult to get a consensus at the end. You know, can you describe a little bit about how Australia dealt with, you know, Russia, China, some of the folks who have very yeah, Krutsky is your new best friend. I just saw him on
0: Monday. He thinks <laughs> you're swell, by the way. Uh, did he offer you a medal? Um, what was it like working with Krutsky, to Chris's point?
2: Uh, look, uh, working with Krutsky, of course, is, is um, a real experience. The experience that we had of uh, the week here in New York and the negotiation that went on will be one that Will forever remain. Um, Probably included if I ever write memoirs, will be included in memoirs. You know, we had points where we had, um, and this was uh, two months ago now. So even getting a space where we could meet physically was really complex, right? So having, being able to identify um, a space, then bringing people together, half the people were virtual. We had tech, you know, cobbled together to sort of project some people into the room. And, you know, at times, during and these were all informal negotiations, you know, quite heated negotiations. You know, I remember at one point we had one person um, on a TV screen being beamed in, and people uh, in a in a room and and having to sort of physically stand between the TV and the people speaking. I won't say who those people were, but it um, you know it really was a, quite a exciting experience to be part of. I think you sort of pinch yourself and go wow, this is, you know, we really are getting down to the nuts and bolts of negotiations. And I think the the dynamic of it being part virtual, part hybrid was pretty interesting as well. There were many pros of it being going virtual in the sense that we had more time for meetings. Um, And, you know, we we got the outcome that we got. One of the big cons of being in the virtual format, though, was obviously the time frame. So particularly for, I'm I'm probably the one who complained about it the most, but, you know, the time difference for everyone from, you know... (laughs) Beijing through to colleagues in Japan and Singapore and New Zealand and throughout the Pacific, we're literally negotiating in the middle of the night because of the time differences. So that was very interesting as well. And I, I think the biggest challenge with the negotiations when they went virtual was you lost a lot of the interpersonal cues. And one of the decisions that I took quite early on with the with the informal sessions that we did from Australia was not to use a poker face. Um, When you looked at the WebEx screen, uh, you would see all of these diplomats sitting there very like not reacting, not doing things. And I actually took a decision that I have so few diplomatic tools in my toolkit that actually my facial expressions, whether I'm sitting there eating popcorn and laughing at someone or, you know, those types of things actually were a diplomatic tool that I had that, you know, perhaps we wouldn't have used previously. So it really did... Did challenge us in so many uh, so many different ways, and I think then the the final stage of the negotiations, you know, we were engaging, you know, on not even a daily basis. I think it was almost an hourly basis with the with the Russian delegation, and there was a shared sense of purpose as well, which is not to be naive about the intention and the end goals, but there was a commitment to an outcome and a result. And I should say there was also a commitment to uh, there being a result a reciprocal result in the GGE. And, you know, we were very pleased after the open-ended working group, the Russians uh, released a press release in which there was reference to the fact that the open-ended working group result bodes well for other processes, including the GGE. And, you know, I look forward to, you know, Russia coming good on that commitment in the next in the next three weeks as we finalise uh, the GGE report.
1: So before we move on from... Um... You know, what's next and what's going to happen with the GG, or what might not happen, and what's going to happen with the next open ended working group. There are a couple of novel things I think that, that Australia was right in the middle of during this last session, the OEWG session. One was, you know, your commitment to try to get input from other stakeholders. So, you know, Australia created this process, you know, a domestic process, but one that reached out to others to get input, you know, to inform your position. And then you also encouraged, I think, other stakeholders to participate. Can you talk a little more about that?
2: Yeah. Look, I think the multi-stakeholder participation, the first thing we have to be face reality in is that Australia is a very strong proponent of multi-stakeholder participation, but there are some countries who don't see the value of multi-stakeholder participation. And so that makes the engagement within the UN framework Challenging, So we recognised the value and we recognised that not everyone felt exactly the same and said about, well, how can we reap the benefits of the experience, the expertise that is held outside of government and bring that into our positions, regardless of what other countries, uh, what their views are. So we did the consultation process uh, in Australia, but that was open to all, you know, for global input. We also did the Let's Talk cyber multi-stakeholder, several rounds, um, which again were global and in partnership, uh, you know, Canada played a huge role in those as well. And obviously active participation in the actual formal um, meetings that were were hosted um, by Singapore. And the participation in the regional, you know, we were a veritable uh, traveling circus, um, you know, going around to all of the different regional organizations. And there was quite a lot of external um, and, and input from multi-stakeholders in most processes. One thing I would say about this, Chris, I, I've heard you talk about the need for there to be genuine multi-stakeholder participation and the fact that, yes, we had this great session that was chaired by uh, David Coe from Singapore, but it was essentially reading statements and how do we move beyond just the statement reading. I think, yes, we absolutely need to put in place the frameworks for meaningful engagement, and we hope that will come through in, for example, the program of action. But I would also say when you look at the formal meetings among states, it is just reading statements in many instances so that in and of itself shouldn't be seen as a measure for the participation and just like the way that we have and make progress in these meetings by having small group meetings or bilateral meetings etc among people who either you have a difficulty that you need to resolve or who has is of common has common interest I think the multi-stakeholder community did really well in engaging and shaping the positions of delegations who were prepared to take that in. Though I know, you know, I had conversations with you, Chris, um, in your capacity as the GFCE, um, and we took um, some of the GFCE positions into the room as the Australian position. We did that in consultation with a number of different lawyers um, on a number of different issues, um, and so really helped drive um, it it genuinely helped shape Australia's position, including on things like uh, the Survey of National Implementation, which whilst it may not be the exact form um, that perhaps um, some multi-stakeholders were calling for, that concept and idea very much came from how do we provide measurable implementation progress and data Um, so that we can make database decisions. And that really was from the multi-stakeholder. One of
0: the biggest opponents, though of uh, multi-stakeholder involvement was China. And you remember in some of the early sessions there was even that awkward workaround where the start of the meeting was delayed for 20 minutes so that the multi-stakeholders could say their their piece. And then the Chinese and the Russians would show up. What was it like working with the Chinese? I was a little surprised that they ended up going along. Yeah, end it seemed to be a change in their position sort of midstream but particularly for Australia and uh, the tensions now between the two countries what were the Chinese like when you talked to them
2: look I think it's difficult for me to be to be too specific when I'm talking about specific delegations also because I'm very conscious of the the GGE negotiations (laughs) which are at a relatively sensitive point what I would say though and it, I mean, it's essentially re- repeating what I said on, on Iran. There are points where we have very specific differences. But what became very clear through the negotiation process with the Chinese is they actually shared a very strong view that they wanted to preserve what we had before, um, recognizing that that compromise was so carefully negotiated and Jim, you know, you know that firsthand having been there, that perhaps as these open ended working group negotiations progressed there was a growing appreciation among all delegations that the value and the preciousness that that was represented by the consensus in those previous documents perhaps for different reasons so you know the reason why one country might want to preserve the consensus report will be potentially different to another But our desire to preserve the gains that we had respectively made and respectively seen in those different documents that had come before, I think really came out, especially when we started to delve deep on, well, how do we progress the conversation? Um, And so I think it really was um, bound together um, in that. Um, and I found the Chinese, you know, in the in the last week of negotiations, the Chinese were very active and very constructive.
1: So
0: we'll th- note that Carlos, the chair, uh, the Brazilian chair of the 2015 group, never wants to hear the word cyber again. So
1: <laughs> uh, kind of life. You know, wow. he,
0: he learned from that. And it, it's interesting because the document itself is not perfect, but. It's the best we could get then. Do you think we'll get better in the future?
2: Absolutely. Of course we will. We will progress. I mean, I think we have via the open-ended working group in and of itself. So You know, taking a document that was negotiated um, among uh, 20, was it 25 in 2015, I think it was, Um, 25 countries endorsed by a resolution, sure, but taking that and putting it on the table to be renegotiated and then endorsed by 193 countries, To me, that is a significant improvement. That is a significant step forward. Um, There was progress uh, in that open-ended working group, you know, uh, international law. There was um, additional language, for example, around peaceful settlements of disputes. That is progress. Uh, The progress around the capacity building uh, principles, you know, to actually get really tangible about, yes, everyone keeps talking about the fact we need capacity building, but let's put some structure around how we deliver that capacity building. So yes, I, I think A, we've already done it and B, I think the GGE report where the open-ended working group really had provided the opportunity to pro- provide breadth in terms of endorsing and bringing everybody to the same starting position for what comes next. I think the GGE offers the real opportunity of depth um, and you know, focusing on, well, okay, we've endorsed the norms, we've endorsed international law. Let's get some more tangible, practical guidance on how we implement them and um, move beyond the statement of, yes, international law applies to talk about how it applies.
1: Well, that, that's exactly what I hit on next. I mean, I think international law is going to continue to be a, a tough nut for a while, but, but a lot of delegations, including Australia, talked about the need to implement the norms, you know, to move forward in implementation. But there wasn't, at least to me, a lot of clarity about what implementation means. So, so what does it mean to you? What when you say, you know, further processes of whether it be the new OEWG or the program of action or whatever else comes next? How do you implement the norms? What how does Australia see that going forward?
2: Hmm. So, I think first of all, it's realization that we are already implementing the norms. It's not like we have to start from scratch. I think you can take almost any country in the world give me a couple of days with their experts and I can come up with a list of uh, the ways in which they are already implementing these norms. So first, it's doing that stock take exercise of what you're doing. And I think part of that is also providing the really practical guidance on, okay, so we say one of the, you know, the first norms is, you know, we should cooperate Uh, have have international cooperation to support international peace and security in cyberspace what does that look like so examples of that are cyber policy dialogues um it's having you know hotlines set up all of these practical things but actually providing examples of what implementation is so that when you say implement people can actually say oh Tick, I'm doing that. Oh, tick, I'm doing that. And that, I think is there is a, uh, a possibility. We, we're hopeful that that will be something that the GGE report will be able to provide. But it's also something that we're looking to incorporate in the Survey of National Implementation. So we're in the process now of uh, working with the, uh, the sponsors of that survey to incorporate that
0: um, into the process. Where do you think the program of action will take this? I mean, what are your expectations? For the
1: poa and i would note that you guys just formally came out and endorsed that as i understand it
2: absolutely so at the launch of our international cyber and critical technology strategy and um, the foreign minister of australia um, mm-hmm. announced australia's co-sponsorship of the uh, of the poa in a nutshell when i think about the, what the poa brings it's an elvis song <laughs> a little bit less conversation a little more action. The discussions on this subject have been going on for a long time. We have a really robust framework which countries, every country in the world, has now endorsed. And the, the challenge now is let's implement that framework or let's allow countries to demonstrate their implementation. Perhaps, Chris, to your point, um, it's, it's not the starting from scratch implementation. And the POA really can provide the framework, the support, um, to encourage and to see that actually come into action rather than just continuing to talk. There obviously will need to be continued conversations. This is and will continue to be a rapidly evolving field. We will need to continue to look at you know, what we need to do to ensure that framework remains current. And, but there is a lot that can be done in terms of action to implement it. The other benefit that I see with the, the program of action is the idea of a political declaration attached to the framework. And Chris, I know this is also something dear to your heart about elevating these issues. And I think the opportunity of a political declaration is not that we would necessarily be saying anything new but that we would elevate it to, for example, leaders level um, or ministerial level and have that commitment that you then as a group of countries um, commit to implement, commit to report against um, and commit to work together as a a global community. And that in turn, I think, will help bolster and build things in terms of accountability as well.
0: Usually the way norms are implemented is... It's not even a good way to describe it States observe norms in their behavior right and that was the model that we used but that brings us back to the point of accountability because there are cases that could be made against more than the usual suspects that we aren't observing the norms uh, perhaps as much as we could um, what would you do on accountability what what's the what's your thinking on how to move that forward? Can you do it in the UN where it's always been an issue? Do you need to do it somewhere else? What What are your thoughts on accountability?
2: I think you can have a conversation about it in the UN, whether the UN will ultimately be the venue in which you hold countries to account, I think will depend on the type of activity. So one of the things that You know, it's such a common refrain, but we don't need to reinvent the wheel just because it's cyberspace. So, for example, I can see if there is a cyber incident that elevates to the level of, for example, the technical term of armed attack, I can see that being something that uh, countries would take to the Security Council seeking to have accountability and resolution. Um, we haven't had an incident that reaches that threshold yet, but I can see that as one way that existing UN mechanisms could be used to bring accountability. But in terms of the day-to-day accountability and how we bring more consequences for malicious behaviour, I think we need to look to the way that we hold countries, because that's what we're talking about in the First Committee context, the way that we hold them accountable for malicious activity anywhere. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that is our entire toolkit that we have of state power, that whether that be economic, whether that be looking at diplomatic measures or law enforcement measures as they're appropriate. And so the idea that accountability requires some new specialised thing uh, just because it's cyber, I, I push back on. Yes, we need more accountability, but I think it's also comes back to the A, awareness that there is something to hold countries accountable against and that's where mm. the open-ended working group comes, uh, comes into its own. Um, and then B, agency to actually respond. And I think the agency point is, is one that is becoming more and more relevant yes, now we've got greater awareness that there is this framework that we can hold countries accountable to, but there's still a sense of helplessness in terms of, but how and what do we do? And so I think it's building the capacity of countries and the understanding of countries that malicious activity in cyberspace can be responded to in the same way that we respond to malicious activity anywhere.
1: So does this loop back really to the yeah you know, political priority question that, as you say, it's not a cyber issue between, let's say, Australia and China or the us and Russia. It is a country issue when you use all the tools you have. But traditionally, there's not been this political awareness where you don't get the same reaction that you would have to a physical event. Are we getting closer to that? Are, are things like the kind of collective response, the deterrence initiative that you know the us. and others in Australia have been participating in is that? coming to fore is the fact that the EU has used this diplomatic toolkit. Are these good signs that we're getting that political level or do we still have a long way to go?
2: Chris, you always said that one of the things that you have that frustrates you is that things like at the Munich Security Conference, that cybersecurity is still dealt with on the side stage, not on the main stage. It was really notable to me that um, President Biden, one of the first speeches that he made, albeit it was a virtual Munich Security Conference, but he made a speech in which he called for an, an active role in the shaping of norms and a, around technology, the use of technology, cyberspace, AI, etc. And that was, you know, front and center in one of the first foreign policy speeches that he delivered on the main stage at Munich Security Conference. You know, to me, that demonstrates that this is an issue that is front and center on of the minds of world leaders. For Australia's part, you know, our prime minister has made several statements on these issues recently, including about incidents that are happening against Australian networks and critical infrastructure. This is something that really has captured the attention. You look at the ASEAN leaders' statement, I mean, you can you, the list goes on. It has captured the attention. Now we need to translate that into action because I think now everyone is saying, okay, we know, we know this is an issue. Now what do we do about it? And I think that comes back to the toolkits, the responses, and, and I think acknowledgement of the fact that this, is, this has to be looked at from many different perspectives. Yes, we need to have clear rules of the road, clear rules of engagement, international law and norms. Yes, we need to implement those, Yes, we need to enforce those rules and norms, but we also need to build basic cybersecurity hygiene and capacity, because if we don't do that, you can do all of those other things and you're still going to have continued persistent malicious activity. And this, of course, is looking at it from a state perspective as well. There's also a whole gamut of activity Um, if we're looking, if our objective is to lessen um, malicious cyber activity that is you know impacting critical infrastructure and you know the average citizen we also need to look at it from a cybercrime perspective as well obviously that needs to and rightly is a separate uh separate discussion but you can't look at it in isolation it has to be holistic and I know I'm preaching to the choir here on that <laughs>
0: well, sort of I noticed that neither of you used the word military when you talked about your toolbox so something perhaps to think about but one thing no, that no, I,
2: we 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 say military it's in it has been in our strategy since I just 2007. You, to say it. you know all of those act, types of activities and responses need to be proportionate to what you're responding yeah. to, and that is really important.
0: When I talk to people, though, is there's not what I would call universal awareness of the uh, framework for respons- responsible state behavior, even among some government officials. Not more than there used to be, but. How would you assess the state of awareness? Do we need to do more? Or is it enough that you know, those who know will know? Do, you know? Most people don't know about arms control or they don't know much about international law. Should we just be content or do you think we need to do more to raise awareness?
2: No, I think we always need to do more to raise awareness. I think the the narrative of cyberspace as the Wild West, she says, rolling her eyes, <laughs> is a persistent narrative. And when you look at the front page of a newspaper and you see the regularity of incidents, we still have a long way to go to rebut that as a popular narrative, I think. And it's important that we do, because until the average Joe Blow on the street understands that um, there are legal frameworks um, that apply in cyberspace, um, then we haven't done our job. I don't think we need them to be able to recite the framework of responsible state behavior, the elements, the norms, et cetera. But the idea that there is a legal framework that applies there uh, is important.
0: The other question you get though is, okay, so we have norms, but no one pays attention to them.
1: Well, that's the accountability piece, right? That's 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 been the missing piece that you've been addressing. And certainly, Military is part of that larger suite of tools you would use, but we haven't really strategically done that by any country. I mean, Australia was part of the the group of countries who did joint attribution on uh, Petty, for instance, that's great. But there's always been this lackluster follow-up to that. At the same time, you don't want to be escalatory by doing something that's out of bounds, but we haven't really escalated in cyberspace either so far. So
0: When you do public speaking, Tell us what you say to the audience about the importance of this framework for responsible state behaviour. And, yes, you're preaching to the choir, but the folks listening to the podcast may not be part of the choir yet.
2: (laughs) The framework of responsible behaviour is exactly what it says on on the tin. It provides us with a framework to measure the behaviour of states. Does that mean that states will always meet our expectations? No because it is a framework for us to measure their behaviour. That is its utility. And, you know, we have legally international law is binding. And so I think when we talk about the voluntary norms and the emphasis that is placed on them being voluntary and non-binding, the response that I have to that is always, but we have agreed (laughs) that existing international law applies and existing international law is binding Um, therefore we have a binding framework which if countries choose to they can use to hold other countries to account for their behaviour in cyberspace. The norms complement international law and um, you know they help us to provide more detail around um, what those expectations of behaviour are you have the confidence building measures, which is so, you know, people are so often very derisive of the confidence building measures, but they're so important in terms of, you know, a point of contact database, knowing who to call in an emergency, um, a- a- avoiding spending two hours trying to find the phone number of the counterpart in the country whilst your prime minister is, you know, about to hit the button on um, activating the military. Um, mm-hmm. You don't want to use those two hours doing that. You want the phone number. So these things are, you know, seem on paper incredibly basic, but actually are fundamental in terms of um, putting in place a framework that provides structure around the use of these tools in the same way that we have these structures for other strategic avenues of power that we have.
1: Yeah, that seems to be one of the most frustrating things that that I've heard, and you've heard this a number of times too. Well, norms don't work, and these rules don't work because people violate them. Yeah. But that, as you know, that happens (laughs) frequently in the physical world too. Exactly. I mean, we don't come up with these concepts. Um, I want to pivot a little bit, if that's all right, Jim, and just ask, You know, you mentioned that your foreign minister just released this new strategy, which includes critical infrastructure, includes supply chain issues, pretty much on the cutting edge of some of those things. I wanted to see if you wanted to say a few words about that.
2: Sure. So the first thing I would say about that strategy is I didn't have a role in drafting it. So so I I guess I'd start by uh, congratulating Toby Feeker, our ambassador for cyber affairs, but also Liam Neville, who led the team in drafting the strategy. It really is groundbreaking in the sense that it covers cyber and critical technology. So our strategy from 2017 was a cyber engagement strategy. This is cyber and critical technology and the other piece about it is that it, it's divided under three headings. So we've got a values piece, you've got the security piece, and then you've got the prosperity piece. I think that conceptualization of all of the challenges that we face across cyber and critical technology issues is really vital. And the values piece in particular provides us with a framework. So often we, you're addressing um, these issues, whether you're talking about AI or quantum computing or whatever your issue is. And the the tendency is to say, okay, gosh, I don't even know where to start. If you put a values frame around that, you automatically have a framework uh, to take forward um, and that guides your engagement um, and the way that you make that much more accessible for the average diplomat who is engaging in these issues. And I think that is a really important tool.
0: So um, what's next on the agenda? What's next on the cyber agenda? Let's assume there's a successful outcome to the GGE, we all hope that, and it looks good. No, don't wanna jinx it, but you've got a success to which you deserve some credit in WG, You've got the POA uh, more or less ready to launch. What do you think we need to do next?
2: I think the biggest challenge assuming we get a successful outcome at the open-ended working group and I think um, at the the GGE GGE, sorry and and I think there is still a lot of work to be done to make that happen so let's not as you say let's not jinx that but I think the biggest challenge within the UN context is looking at well how do we deal with the fact that we have a five-year open-ended working group and a proposal for the POA how are those two going to work how do we make sure that that is Good use of resources and what are their points of difference? Can we unify those processes? Those are, I think, the key most pressing questions uh, post GGE uh, within the UN framework uh, conversation. Yeah,
1: you know, there's a big drive I noticed during the OEWG, which, which a lot of countries welcome to, you know, increase diversity and sort of cyber diplomacy, particularly get more women involved. And I know that Australia and Canada were big proponents of this. Um, and I was struck by how many new sort of women diplomats, South Africa and others, participated. What, you know, how do you see that agenda going? I know that's one that, you you know, that uh, your, your country felt strongly about.
2: Look, I think um, one of my one of the most inspiring things of the open ended working group process was undoubtedly the women in cyber program. And that program was born out of my frustration of attending sessions um, that call themselves women in cyber, that admire the problem and talk about we need more women in this field etc, um, etc. Cetera, et cetera. And the conclusion is we need more women in this field. And it drives me bonkers. And so I wanted to look at what can we do? Well, how do we actually do that? What is actionable um, that we can come up with something that has impact rather than navel-gazing. And everything that you look at in this space is you need training, you need mentorship, and you need on-the-job experience. They they are the things that I said. And so the, the Women in Cyber program was designed around all of that. We brought a cohort of women, with, and this was with, um, with the UK, with Canada, with the Dutch, all brought different female diplomats from all around the world to New York. We gave them training on the background of these processes, very impartial training that was delivered for us by uh, UNITAR and UNIDIR in various places. We gave them negotiation training, which was fabulous. Um, They really enjoyed that. Uh, I would have liked to have done that training. And then they participated in the actual open-ended working group process and and took that, that experience, added to it their national perspectives. And you really saw... A very, very tangible and direct impact, um, both in terms of the expertise that they brought to the room and the energy in the room as well. I think particularly for the the meeting that we had um, just before in February 2020, would that be right? Just before everything closed down. (laughs) Uh, You know, it was was incredible, but also the longer lasting impact of that. So the networks that are still in place um, that bring together uh, all of those diplomats and the impact that's then had in their own countries. You know, they've gone home and said, oh, we need this is a really big issue. We need to be organising ourselves domestically. And so they're really driving change not only within the UN forum, but also within their own governments. I think one one interesting thing about the women in cyber program is that like the multi stakeholder issue there are countries who look at this and say why are you, why are you just talking all the time about women's participation I, I think i think i can share with you a story the conversation that i had with andre kutsky about this which was really quite revealing to me you know he started by asking me, you know, what's the deal? Why, why are you always talking about gender? You're a woman, you're good at what you do, you know, that's that's enough. We don't need any more. And um, and you know, I started to have the normal reasoned arguments, you know, responses by saying, you know, there's very clear evidence that, you know, women involved in peace agreements means the peace agreements stick for longer, et cetera. All of these standard points. And you know, you could see his eyes glazing over. And so I made the observation to him that. Um, during the course of these processes as Australia's lead negotiator uh, in these processes as a woman uh, in a senior position that I had been you know, inappropriately propositioned, touched, et cetera, um, three times in the two-year process
0: of those negotiations. In OEWG?
2: Within the context of um, the negotiations, yeah. Um, and he initially... Um, raised his eyebrows and then he said well you should take it as a compliment and laughed you know uh-huh. and then he said but were they meaning it as a compliment or were they doing it to distract you or and then you know you can see the cogs turning and then he said, like, but and I said well was it that or was it a cultural difference is it that I you know the the touching is entirely appropriate within the the cultural environment um in which the the person is uh, is from and uh you know we we had a conversation about this, and I said to him at the end i'm like andre that this is exactly why um that you know the challenge that we have is because I then spend you know half a day thinking about all of those things and juggling all of those dynamics with a delegate whom I need to negotiate with to get an outcome whilst the whilst I should be thinking about how do I negotiate the outcome of the process. So the thought, um, the time that is consumed by dealing with those types of things is really significant. And he got it at that point. He, you, you know, he said, "Ah, oh, I understand. Like it's this giant game of chess and, and you know, the various different um, aspects and, and the way that the attention is given and drawn. And he was currently then sitting with two of his aides who were both women and he turned to them and he said, does this happen to you? And we had a really interesting conversation about um, how that then plays out uh, in the Russian environment as well, which I won't go into, but you know, I think from there are many reasons why it makes good sense uh, to have diversity and not just women, but to have diversity in representation, uh, the facts support it, um, the experiences of the negotiators um, are important as well.
0: For me, some of the most powerful negotiators in cybersecurity, in fact, the most powerful negotiators are women, and I won't give you the list you can imagine, but there's three or four who clearly lead the pack. You're, you're one of them, so you're here, so I'll say that. You know who the others are, but that that's interesting in itself that cyber is largely on some countries driven by this. The other issue that comes up though, in addition to diversity is development. And so I was thinking while you were talking of the Kenyan, who fabulous, intelligent on this matter, a great negotiator, the woman, remember she was sort of short. Uh, in any case, when you talk to developing countries, they say, what I want to hear is how this affects development. I want to hear how this fits in with the SDGs. What,
1: what do you say back to them on the development issue? And, and just one addendum to that question. One of the things we did not get in the open-ended working group and you know that that we and others pushed for this was cybersecurity, particularly cybersecurity capacity building, being treated as foundational to the UN's development goals. And there was there, unfortunately there was reticence in including that.
0: But they they really focused on economic development and on on how they grow their national economies, which is perfectly appropriate. Development is a, one of the issues that's sort of the non-leading, non-Western issue in some ways. Mm-hmm. What what's your what's your take on development?
2: From a development perspective, to me it's a no-brainer. If we are talking about securing and uh, encouraging development wherever you are, um, whether you are a developing country or a a developed country, you can't do that unless you have um, good cybersecurity foundations and you can't grow your economy unless we get a handle on how to respond to malicious activity. Um, So the link to development for me is one that is very much there. I don't think that there is necessarily a reticence to recognise that link. I think Chris, the the pushback that we had, and you know Australia was one of the countries that argued for its inclusion in the report. The pushback that we had was more that countries don't want to divert resources away from things like maternal health in order to provide better cybersecurity. Now, the response on those types of things is to say, well, if we don't if you don't have good cybersecurity and a hospital gets hit by ransomware, then maternal health is going to be affected. For many of the countries that are looking at the sustainable development goals, it's this needs to be additional funding. We recognize this need, but it needs to come with additional funding, not a reallocation of funding. And I think that is going to be the key point um, in being able to get the SDG conversation um, across the line
0: if it's any consolation i heard the same line in 2010 capacity building was not in the first uh versions of the 2010 report it was only added at the insistence of the south african representative who said i will not concur unless we add capacity building and, and then of course the next discussion was where's the money coming from and i see we're still talking about that so
1: well and i won't i won't dime out the participant although uh, they've mentioned before but we had one discussion back in 2010 about capacity building uh, and uh, one country representative said, well, we've got to be careful in building the capacity of other countries because they can use that capacity to attack us. <laughs> so, so getting that larger perspective, I think, is important. Yeah. Although what I've seen is you, you need to address the
0: development question to yeah. bring the rest
1: I, of the world along. I think that was one of the things I found most interesting. I mean, there's many interesting things in the OEWG, how many countries raise that. And despite, you know, the, the very important topics that are being discussed, a lot of countries, that's really where their focus is. And if we don't scratch that edge, we're not going to be able to get the progress we need in other places. Well, Joanna, well, you know, we, we've taken a fair amount of time with you. It's been lovely as always. But are there any kind of parting thoughts that you want to you wanna impart to us? Anything about what, you know, where you think things are, where things are going in the future? You're optimistic, you're pessimistic, just any, anything you want to say to close this out.
2: I'm an optimist.
1: Uh, (laughs) We knew that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But I'm an optimist that is also a realist. So, you know, what does an optimist call a pessimist? A realist with all the facts. Um, So I think we really need to continue to have a fact-based engagement on these issues. We also should have an appreciation of how far we have to go, but also how far we've come. You know, I think about back in 2017, when we were drafting the first iteration of our strategy, the catch cry was, cyber affairs is no longer a niche issue, it is a strategic foreign policy issue. That is now evolved from, you know, it's not a niche issue, it's a foreign policy issue, to it is the central foreign policy issue that is central to national security to economic prosperity and to development and that has happened in you know the space of three or four years what we now need to do is upskill and mainstream this this issue in an informed way so that when we are you know harnessing the attention of leaders of presidents etc that we're harnessing that and directing it in the right direction and that we're having you know sensible and and strong policy outcomes that actually improve peace and stability. And in that respect, I think we need to be moving away from eventually, we're talking long-term future, cyber diplomacy. I think we, the objective is to do ourselves out of a job. Cyber diplomacy should just become diplomacy in the same way that we have you know diplomats who all of our diplomats can talk about in an informed way about human rights we need diplomats who can also speak in an informed way about cyber and critical technology issues and understand their strategic impact so I think my final message would be, if you're someone listening to this podcast is, uh, and you're you know, wondering whether you should dip your toe into this water, is come and join us. There could not be a more interesting and challenging field to be working in, but you likewise couldn't get a field that will be more central going forward.
1: Johanna Weber,
0: thank you for today's conversation.
1: This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the Cybersecurity Agency of Singapore and the Estonian Ministry of Foreign Affairs.